welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. I'm still on maternity leave, uh, but I will be doing some podcast episodes, but they are going to be less frequent. Hope you will stay with me anyway. Since the European refugee crisis of 2015 and the EU-Turkey deal that followed, it might seem as if things are under control at the European border. This, however, is far from the case, with asylum seekers arriving to dreadful conditions on the Greek islands to the so-called hotspots. This episode was recorded last week with volunteers and researchers working on Samos. I speak to Julia Ciccoli, who work for the NGO Still I Rise, Gemma Bird, lecturer in politics at the University of Liverpool, and Amanda Russell, senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Aston University. I started by asking Julia Ciccoli about the work that she does in Samos. I'm Julia and I've been working for this new NGO we set up on Samos around August. It's called Still I Rise. And our focus is in formal education for um, teenagers aged 12 to 17. Um, we do this because even after three months, after the beginning of the, say, refugee crisis on the island, uh, still of, as of now, as of today, um, children residing in the refugee camp here are not allowed in public school. Um, so the age group 6 to 12 is covered by another Greek NGO that provides the informal education. But before us, there was no one um, working on the 12, 17 years old uh, age group. Um, Samos volunteers for a year uh, started an informal program with them, uh, but it was just very limited to a one room um, and it wasn't a proper center for the children. So. Um, with two other uh, long-term volunteers, uh, we decided to create a new uh, Greek NGO uh, that could focus on informal education for this age group, including unaccompanied minors, so children that arrive here uh, on their own with no family members. Um, what we have now is a youth center. Uh, we provide informal education Monday to Friday uh, from 8.45 to 6. Um, we have two separate age groups and different programs, um, and every class is separated based on their English level. So we have basic, intermediate, and advanced. Um, all topics are taught in English, except obviously for Greek language lessons. Um, and we are able to provide four slots of subjects a day. Uh, so that range from, of course, English, and it's mostly English for the basic classes. Uh, but then with the intermediate and advanced, we can also teach maths, history, geography, um, science. And in the afternoon, we mostly have recreational activities like art, music class, um, we have fitness or relaxation, and depending on the skills of the volunteers that join our team, uh, we've had a, a theater workshop that ran for a month, um, or an emotion workshops, how to deal with emotions, because we had a psychologist on team. Um, on Saturday, we don't have classes, but our center is open, and children can play video games or ping pong or watch a movie. Um, and because of the deterioration in the conditions at the camp in the past few months um, and the fact that the food line has become longer and longer and more dangerous, uh, we had reports of some of our kids being injured in the food line um, because there were just too many people lining up. We decided to offer them breakfast and lunch as well. 
So if they want to, they can stay with us the whole day and in, be in a first, obviously, safe and warm place uh, where they can also uh, get an education, at least a temporary education, because obviously Samos is a transit place. So for someone who's not familiar with the conditions on Samos, um, the food line, I, I assume this is where um, refugees are provided with food from NGOs in yeah. general? Yeah, and that gets really from busy. The, from the army. Um, the the hotspot on Samos is a hotspot, so it's run by the Greek government and the army. Um, so food is provided, breakfast, uh, lunch and dinner uh, from them from inside the camp. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, What's your uptake in terms of um, how many of the children on Samos um, come uh, and take part in your um, education? Um, at the moment, we have uh, 135 students enrolled who regularly attend and 100 like plus 15 who are enrolled and have a spotty attendance, let's say. So uh, we cater to 150 children. Okay, and, and, and how many children would you say there are who, who could potentially benefit from, from this? Um, I don't have the exact numbers because we used to, have, there used to be a document that gave a breakdown of uh, children's ages in the camp because again our uh, range is 12 to 17 so I know uh, there are um, around 4,200 people on Samos and 25% of them are children um, but I don't know the age range um, so I can guess that potentially there are 150 more mm. children who fit in this age group but it's a guess it's not based on facts yeah because i don't have the data yeah sure i was just wondering if there were many yeah. children who perhaps for for various reasons uh, didn't access this um this um <clears throat> teaching um yeah no there are there are for sure we have a waiting list now because we can't take them all in oh okay okay yeah. Um, and you've talked as well about unaccompanied minors. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a big uh, proportion of the children you teach? Um, right now, it's about 40% of the children we have, 45%. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And I, I assume they might have some additional needs or different needs, or is that any different, teaching them or to the ones who come with their families? Um, obviously they lack the support system that a family gives you. Um, so yeah, generally speaking on average, they're obviously more fragile or more vulnerable than other children. But in general, I mean, um, we, we don't ask kids about their past, of course, but sometimes things come up. So I would say it really mostly depends on, um, the, life experience let's say that they had before coming here uh, but also the way they live here I mean they're supposed to arrive in Europe and have a better life um, but the conditions they live in are just horrifying and inflict more trauma on already traumatized children mm. uh, but that applies to everyone children with family or alone yeah. uh, of course if you're here with your parents and you are 14 you have a lot more support than a 14 year old who's here on his own yeah 
Just another couple of questions before I'm going to ask sure. Jim and Amanda about their um, their research. Um, um, just you, you mentioned the deterioration in the conditions, so I was just mm-hmm. wondering about that. And also, do you have any idea how long, on average, average uh, children will will stay on Samos and then and stay with you? So that so to answer your first question, basically, um, what's happened is that especially starting from this summer onwards, we've had a spike in new arrivals. Um, so in how many boats uh, reach Samos. Um, so the Samos hotspot is meant to house 648 people. And I think around October, it got to a point where there were 5,000 people. At the moment, it's 4,200 on the island and 3,800 living uh, in the camp. So obviously the ta- the camp is, I don't know, eight times, it's uh, six times its capacity, um, which means that there is no space in the camp to host everyone. So people are just camping in the forest outside the camp, which is on a hill, uh, with no access to electricity or toilets. Um, they often have to buy their own tent, which is a very... They, I mean, most of them come from the Chinese shop because they're the cheapest ones. Uh, and they sort of have to make their own uh, improvements um, right. to survive winter because it is winter and uh, Samos has a very rainy uh, winter season. Um, it doesn't get, like, temperatures don't go below zero normally, but you never know. Uh, but it really rains a lot. And even some of the unaccompanied minors live in what we call the forest, so outside. Um, there is a level inside the camp called level two, that is the minors level. Only unaccompanied minors are supposed to live there, uh, but there is no space anymore. Um, so a lot of them, uh, right now there are around 210 unaccompanied minors living in the camp. Um, my estimate, but it's, it's an estimate, is not based on data that I have, is that maybe around 180 to 100 uh, don't live on that level. Right. Um, and uh, I forgot your second question. Uh, just how long on average um, children, or, uh, or I, I suppose anyone, would, would stay? It's really impossible to say. Um, there are many nationalities, and every asylum case is different, because it's not just this nationality, but also on vulnerability, and they go through different uh, procedures. Also, uh, the interpreter that is available in what language might... So we've seen people leaving the island after two months, and we've seen people being here for a year and a half. Mm. So it's really, really hard to give an answer based on facts. Um, In our experience... Um, on very much average with our kids, I would say maybe six months. Uh, but again, it it it's really uh, it widely changes uh, individual by individual or family by family. Yeah. Um, thank you. And Gemma and Amanda, can you 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 there doing some research, but you're also doing some volunteering. So would you could you tell us about well both of those things, both what kind of research you do and and, and the volunteering that you do? I don't know who wants to start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Gemma. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So we came to Samos the first time in the summer in July, um, and we were here for only a few days, and we. Uh, um, and we also met 
uh, with an organization called Samos Volunteers um, and they told us a lot about the conditions uh, and when we were here in July um, as Julia has kind of alluded to the numbers were very different uh, and then when we came back uh, we were quite surprised and shocked uh, by how the conditions have changed how the numbers of people have changed as well uh, but it was important to us that when we came back a second time uh, that we focused on spending a great period of time here uh, that we helped and uh, volunteered for an NGO and that we gained a better understanding than you can by simply dropping in and doing interviews. Um, the conditions and the situation on Samos changes on a daily basis. So since we've been here, we've seen glorious sunshine uh, mixed with torrential rain, um, freezing cold conditions. Uh, we've had days with no arrivals and then we've had days um, with arrivals of 54 people. Uh, and as well as stories of people um, being killed or dying uh, in the sea trying to get here. So um, the conditions and the situation changes on a daily basis. And if you're only here for a few days, you don't understand this. Uh, you don't understand the, ne the need and the necessity for the third sector and the NGO sector. And you don't properly understand the failures of governance and the failures uh, of both the national and international level. Uh, so it was really important to us that our research was able to engage with this and we were able to see um, how things were changing uh, and also better understand how the governance and government systems were working or in this case not working and from this better understand things like vulnerability, uh, better understand camp conditions uh, and what alternatives can be in place. So that is kind of why we wanted to spend more time and also why we wanted to work with uh, an NGO that we'd met before and were impressed by what they were doing. The other thing that was really important was that we came to Samos and that we didn't go to um, Lesbos. Um, and that we felt that we needed to do that because so much attention is being uh, given to the experience in Moria camp that we wanted to really raise awareness that there are, other, there are five islands and there are five hotspots and they all need attention and they all need, um, everybody needs to know what's going on in these various places. I think that's pretty much all I have to add to what Deborah covered. Okay. Um, what is the particular research that you're doing? Like, what particular research questions and uh, and issues are you addressing? Well, like at, right now um, we're here because we're working on a project that is looking at alternative provisions um, to refugee camps. Um, so that was that was the primary reason we were here. And we were asking, we were interested in figuring out if there were different alternative ways that could encapsulate. Um, a lot of the provision that wasn't coming from the state that maybe could there could be greater partnerships, greater cooperation, um, just as a way of innovating and thinking through different ways of approaching what is, if I had, I mean, I genuinely believe is going to be a long-term problem. This isn't something that's going to go away quickly. Indeed, that's one thing. The longer that we're here on the island, the, long, the more you come to realize that what started out... Um, uh, and I'm thinking here with reference to the EU-Turkey deal, what started as a very specific response to a very specific conflict has changed and transformed, and you have people arriving on Samos from a whole variety of regions in the world. Yeah, so um, the range of questions I wanted to pick up on there, and one is perhaps um, uh, what you, you've all mentioned, that there's been a, a spike in, in new arrivals and that, um, and that there's this sort of... Um, uh, that perhaps a bit uh, Samos has been overwhelmed um, and, and running uh, well over capacity. So how come there's been a spike in arrivals, and and is there any link to um, to to different policies such as the EU Turkey deal, which I suppose is a bit old now? 
So I think that the EU-Turkey deal is a particularly important moment um, for the islands in particular. Uh, obviously, as the borders closed, um, people stopped being seeing seeing this island as a transition island, uh, as well as obviously Lesbos, Kios, uh, Kos, and Kiros, uh, and people became stuck here for far longer periods of time. And as kind of Julia pointed out, we've heard stories of people being here for up to eighteen months um, without moving forward in the process, um, and that does change the situation um, and. Despite the lack of space on the mainland as well and things like that changes the situation on the islands. Uh, but as does the changing conflicts around the world uh, and the fact that originally uh, you were seeing a lot more Syrian families, Afghani families, um, and whilst they are still represented, actually there are quite a lot of people here um, who come from uh, various different countries in the continent of Africa, uh, in the DRC in particular, um, has quite a high representation and that changes the population as you see a lot more single men uh, and less families so there's a very there's and there are differences that come from that and obviously uh, tensions that come from that as well and the changing populations but also the way in which the third sector and um, the camp itself has to respond uh, because like you need different translators and there are different languages and things like that that become really important. So how come there's a change in population? Is it mainly because the EU-Turkey um, deal made it difficult for people from Syria and Afghanistan to actually make this journey? The Turkey deal has been in place for almost three years now. Um, and obviously at the very beginning, after March 2016, there was a, a, a huge decrease of numbers uh, crossing. And I think even now the numbers are way lower than they used to be before the EU-Turkey deal. Um, but for until, I would say, December 2017, still most of the population coming here was from Syria and Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. Um, starting December last year, and then consistently so, we've seen more um, uh, asylum seekers, migrants, refugees coming from African countries, uh, mostly from DRC and Cameroon. Um, I at, at the same time, the other big difference um, started this summer where we started having many Afghanis, mostly families crossing to the point where now Afghanistan uh, is the number one nationality in the camp, the most represented one. So it, it changed from Syrian and Iraqis always being number one and two. Uh, to Afghanistan, then DRC, Iraq, Cameroon, and Syria. I have no answer for that, um, but I'm guessing that not many people would go through Libya anymore, uh, given the whole situation in the Mediterranean, that side, let's say, and with Italy and Malta and everything. So I'm guessing they find another route, but it's just guess. It's not based on facts, because I have no way of knowing that. But it is a fact that nationalities of new arrivals have changed. And just to go back uh, to the very basics, perhaps not everyone is familiar with this um, concept of hotspots. Uh, I don't know if you just want to give a very brief explanation of what's meant by hotspot. So the hotspots were the response to uh, the situation and especially as a, as a result of the EU-Turkey deal. Uh, and before that, but predominantly they got renamed uh, so originally people were coming here um, and they became hotspots. They're now referred to as reception centres. So the purpose behind them is that, that they're supposed to be temporary uh, and that they're not supposed to be a long-term thing um, because of the fact that they're not, um, 
that these are supposed to be transit islands. They're not supposed to be um, places of final uh, residency. But the idea um, is to kind of um, have most of the um, reception facilities on these five hotspots rather than spread out. So fit. So first reception are indeed based uh, in the, uh, they have first reception in the first, in the five hotspots. Uh, so where you are registered, uh, you have your fingerprint taken, uh, your names, your documents, uh, they verify your aid if you have your documents on you, otherwise they go through a number of different procedures, including we have been told in certain cases, DNA testing uh, to try and verify um, who people are. Uh, although I do have, we have been told that's very rare. Uh, you then uh, go through the procedure uh, and originally you were supposed to be moved to the mainland. Uh, now this relies on a system where you require an open card. Um, however, uh, the times this is taking to happen are now a lot longer than they originally were. Yeah. Um, Amanda, did you want to... Let's try this again. No, I don't think so. Gemma's pretty much covered everything. everything. Yeah. Um, and what kind of support does um, Greece get from the rest of the EU uh, to um, somewhere like Samos? So I don't have any figures or data. Um, what I know is that um, there used to be, um, I mean, especially after the EU-Turkey deal, I mean, Greece is in charge um, of this situation and they're obviously um i mean i would say the european union is more at, at least that's my understanding it's more than happy to support monetarily let's say um but there are certain uh, steps that need to be taken for eu funding to come through um but at least on samos um the european union or other ngos including unhcr and so on all of them are here in support of the Greek government uh, because obviously Greece is a sovereign state and this is happening on Greek soil. Um, so I don't know if Gemma or Amanda know more about this, but that's all I can say and everything that I know on my side. Yeah. I think the one thing that comes through when we were in Brussels doing some interviews was um, this idea that there's a a level of frustration on the part of the EU because there is money being given to deal with these um, problems, but they don't seem to understand once the money has been given to Greece, how it is used effectively and efficiency, efficiently and questions asked aren't necessarily given um, the most clearly defined answers that could be um, provided. And the other, the other thing that is intervening in this this particular challenge is the fact that Greek is a sovereign state um, and the European Union and the officials that we spoke to felt very strongly that that needed to be respected. Um, so the, the European Union has provided money, uh, financial backing to uh, support this problem. But at the end of the day, um, their position very much seems to be that it is something that the Greek government is dealing with. Um, and and that, that pretty much is where the conversation stops. So is this part of what you refer to as a failure of governance? The, the uh, kind of uh, what I uh, perhaps interpret as a, a lack of accountability, is that what you're saying? So one of the things that we have been particularly interested in is accountability, so where the money goes and how it is tracked. Uh, in particular, there is a current court case uh, with the outsourcing of the food, for example. So the money is given to the army, the army then outsourced, uh, and there was a court case um, that is currently going through the court system about this. 
So there is a track of money that is very hard to follow. And when you ask questions about it, people go, go, go quite quiet. Um, and that's one of the kind of issues here is exactly what I mean when we talk about this kind of lack of accountability, lack of uh, good governance in the situation. There is a need to maintain Greek so sovereignty. Um, there is a need for the European money to be here. And it's how you kind of balance that and who is kind of recording what and where the money is going and what at what time and how effectively it's being used. Um, so, for example, um, to use an example from Lesbos, actually, rather than Samos, uh, once you've used a blanket once, uh, when you've handed out a blanket to a family, um, when that family leaves, rather than washing those blankets, they're binned. Right. Um, a lot of the food on both islands is provided in containers that are then thrown away. So there is a lot of rubbish and a lot of issues that come through that. And there's a lot of kind of issues, therefore, with sustainability and money and loss and things like that. And is there any, I mean, you were saying that there was frustration, Amanda was saying there was this frustration at the EU level. Um, is, is it just frustration or is there actually some work being done to, um, to perhaps uh, increase accountability and, and, and effective use of the resources? It's an interesting conversation to have. We haven't really been able to find out um, that many answers with that respect. There are, I mean, we have had conversations in passing where people suggest that this is something that's going to start. Um, but uh, from our, we've only just begun to uh, look into that aspect of uh, the research and we're not coming up with a lot at the moment. That doesn't mean that it's not out there. It just means we need to keep working on it. Mm. And you were also saying that your research, um, one of the aims is to try to find some alternatives to um, encampment. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know how far you've got with that, but have you got any examples of what might uh, work as an alternative? Um, I come at this problem not necessarily as somebody who's trained uh, in migration studies, um, coming from a more theoretical background. And I really get stuck. Because when I look out, and um, and this has happened all three times that we've come to this particular um, region, it seems to me that any solution that is tied to a state-based system that involves borders and sovereignty is never going to succeed. Jem is looking at me like I'm quite funny, but I, I just <laughs> I'm 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 struggling because I don't know what the answer is. Um, but there is, I mean, saying that that's a very academic way of looking at the problem, and I recognize that. But when you look at the relationship and you look at the provision that's coming from the third sector, um, and the relation, the solidarity relationships that come out of that, there there are amazing people on the ground doing amazing work, and that's something that we'll obviously take away from this experience um, while we've been here on Samos. Um, but I, 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 at this stage, I'm, I'm still struggling. Um, I don't know, Gemma, if you want to come in on that. I think with regards to alternatives to refugee camps and alternatives to reception centres, um, we have seen examples of activist movements and third sector organisations doing a better job at building community and a better job at building solidarity uh, and a better job at provision uh, in a way that empowers people. So, for example, if you live in informal housing on the mainland, uh, you have an opportunity to cook your own food in a safe environment, uh, to be involved in the day-to-day -day running of that environment and to have to have a say in it. If you're living in a reception centre where your food is provided three times a day, you have no, no autonomy over what that looks like. Uh, you have no say in the running of that environment. 
then you take away people's opportunities for autonomy, but also people's opportunities to have a say in their life. Uh, and that's a really dehumanizing, demoralizing and destabilizing position to put people in. Uh, and it takes away people's ability to have some sort of control. And I think what's really important about third sector movements, activist movements, voluntary movements, is that they create an environment where that isn't the case, where you can come to somewhere, and we've found this with Samus Volunteers and with Still I Rise, uh, where you're treated like a human being, you're treated like a member of the community, uh, you're treated like someone who can, who everyone wants to have a conversation with, uh, you can be a part of something that's important, that matters, that feels like a family. Um, and you don't get that in reception centres and you don't get that in kind of state-run provision. Uh, and until you start to get that in those, those forms of provision, I don't think we'll be seeing people being treated as human beings. People are being treated in, as numbers and that's a huge problem. Yeah, and then to follow on from that, I think, I think what's really important is that we don't forget um, there, there's, there's so many different ways of looking at this problem. And one thing that we're really trying to do is bring these two conversations together. So you have, you know, the people, you, you were asking questions about the, United, the European Union and the conversations that are happening there and then conversations that may or may not be having with the Greek government. And then there's this other aspect of conversations that are happening on the everyday level and the people who are living out these experiences. And ultimately any solution is going to have to come from all of these three aspects coming together and having the, the important conversations that I think one of the reasons we're here and we're doing this project is is to hopefully be a part of those conversations and inter not intervene in them but but listen to what people are saying and take 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 that away and learn from that and hopefully that is where some of some of the answers that we don't have yet are going to come from and Julia yeah, from, and I from, think the major oh, thing oh Nope. Sorry, I just wanted to say one, yeah. one last thing. The major thing that needs to change, actually, is that the governmental organisations start to involve the non-governmental organisations in a productive manner. Uh, that more needs to be done for people to sit down together, have these conversations, because the reality is that the third sector has filled a gap um, and a really important gap and done a lot of the work that should probably be being done in a different way. But they've done it really well and there needs to be more um, solutions that come from working with them uh, and a lot more kind of sitting down together. Yeah uh, and Julia from your perspective what would you um, what, what do you think is needed uh, kind of urgently and perhaps in long term to to find a solution? So obviously urgently the the biggest need is housing. I mean, um, people live in tents under the rain uh, that get flooded every night. Uh, children, men, women, uh, people get sick. Um, they don't have access to a toilet, to electricity. I mean, obviously, uh, that requires fixing. Um, but having been here a while, you know, uh, we've always been very happy when we've seen our students being transferred onto the mainland uh, because we know that they are going to end up either in an emergency hotel or even in a camp, but it's, it's more like, most likely going to be a camp with a container. So they have a roof over their head with a bed, uh, potentially even heating. Uh, so obviously the physical needs get kind of met. Um, the problem is that very often, I mean, with children is a little easier in, in some camps, uh, and especially in Athens or Thessaloniki, uh, children do get to go to Greek school, uh, but that's not happening everywhere. So um, sometimes, especially what we see with our students and their families, that they get moved to an emergency hotel, 
uh, often in a remote location. Um, they're very happy for the first week because obviously it's a hotel. Uh, but then soon after they realize there is nothing around them. They don't go to school. They're missing out on yet other years or months of education that very often they missed in their home country or those that lived in Turkey for a while, a lot of our students used to work since they were 12 in Turkey. So they, they really missed out on huge uh, years of education in school. And from our, and we don't know how long that will be because uh, with this system of open cards, um, it applies to some people. So it means that they are free to leave the island and move uh, around the mainland. They cannot leave Greece. Uh, but their asylum interview is most of the times in 2020 or after. So they're just waiting. Um, and my perception is that they're sort of parked somewhere like, OK, you no longer live in the mud. You have a roof over your head. But that's it. Mm. And in the long term, and it doesn't only apply to children, it applies to everyone. I mean, you have people that come from very traumatizing situations who also lived in traumatizing situations here on Samos and then they're moved on and they're just left there somewhere with no support, with no possibility to integrate um, in, in Greek society, even, you know, learning the language, learning the culture, meeting people or trying to find a job. Obviously, Greece in general is in an economic crisis and jobs are really hard to find. So our worry when we look at our students is where does it end? You know, it's not just the six months, one year, three months, whatever time you spend on Samos. But even after that, um, at least from our experience on left, it's really hard to see an integration plan and an understanding what's going to happen to them, say, four years from now, if and when they have all their papers and their refugee status and whatever, um, if they just wasted this time parked somewhere with no education, no integration, no access to anything, uh, and what, what will happen next? You know, what, what also, I mean, from a European perspective, like what, what will these people do in Greece or in Europe, uh, wherever they end up? Um, it will be a, a bigger cost on society, not just the monetary cost in terms of, you know, the poorer you are, the less educated you are, the more likely you are to end up not having a job and being in need of being supported and so on. So, yeah, that is my, my biggest worry in the long term and mm. what I see from experience from experience, from my experience here. Yeah, quite a big worry. Yeah. Um, just finally, I just wanted to ask as well, to return to Samos, um, what's the uh, attitudes, if you know, from uh, of the local population towards yeah. the... Yeah. So, um, Samians uh, have been uh, truly incredible when this crisis started and the same happened on Lesbos and I'm sure you can find a lot of videos and resources for a very long time. Um, it took a while for the proper authority to take charge even in terms of food distribution and clothes distribution and so on and it was all on the shoulders of locals. Uh, they were distributing food in the um, at the port and this was before the EU-Turkey deal when you had um, in hundreds of people crossing, uh, sometimes even in a day, 
Um, and then they would move on fairly quickly. Uh, Syrians and Palestinians would take maybe three days, other nationalities two weeks, but then the borders of Europe were open, so they would move on to the mainland and then they could go wherever they wanted. Uh, so at the time, the local population was just incredible. Um, there was a group of local uh, women who made breakfast every day for 800 people, another group that prepared lunch. Uh, I was here the first time um, in beginning of March 2016, so before the EU-Turkey deal, um, and we were supporting them by distributing lunch. Um, but as the EU-Turkey deal took place, the camp became a hotspot, and the army and the Greek government are in charge. Um, things like in the past three years, in terms of living conditions, things have gotten worse. And also, uh, the, this camp is in town. Uh, it's two minutes walk from the city center of Vasi, that's the capital city, um, that has around 6,000 people as population. And three years in, um, nothing has changed. Uh, people are still stuck here. The living conditions are worse. And right now, with 3, 000, like 4,000 uh, refugees on the island and 6,000 locals, it's almost a one-on-one -on -one ratio. Mm. Um, and this is an, an island, I mean, and this is fairly new. And obviously, as conditions get worse at the camp, people come to the town to find material to build better shelters. Um, so they try to find wood or even nails. Um, obviously, considering the situation, sometimes there are breaking-ins um, or, you know, small... Um, or um, stuff gets stolen. Uh, mostly this is a very, it used to be uh, a very small community, so people wouldn't lock their doors or they would just leave the key in the ignition of their scooter while they would take a coffee. Um, and there have been small incidents and nothing big, but in a community where there is no crime, if there is one breaking in, crime goes up 100%, you know? Mm. Um, and so understandably so in my uh, my opinion locals are angry they they don't want um this situation anymore so you always have the odd racists uh, that are like against that because oh my god no immigrants uh, but there are also normal people that have seen their their town change radically they see misery every day um and my understanding is that they feel kind of left behind by the government because they, in the end, are the ones dealing with the situation here. And you also have very, very kind people that even after years of this are still donating clothes, uh, um, helping out, donating food. And it shouldn't be on them, you know. Um, but when you look at that camp and you see it from the town, I mean, if you have a heart, it's really hard to, you know, not do something about it. But it's unfair uh, that Greek locals should do it, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a complicated situation and it's not a black and white uh, situation. There is obviously frustration. There are uh, protests sometimes. Um, but to some extent, I mean, if I put myself in their shoes... Um, I completely understand where they come from. On the other hand, of course, uh, we are here supporting refugees because their living conditions are um, unspeakable right now. Um, I think all of that pushes back to the concept of 
governance and government and the failings of the state uh, and the failings of and the potential failings of the European Union as well to ensure that it isn't the local population that are responsible for supporting people, that it isn't the third sector that are responsible for filling the gap. Uh, and we, the state and the international community needs to do better because currently the reliance on voluntary organisations, the reliance on local people and, the, and kind of the kindness and generosity of local people isn't enough. The conditions in that camp are horrific. Um, when it rains, people's tents slip down the hill because at the, the reception centre is built on a hill and there is no indoor space um, for people who live outside of the perimeter. And I think this is something that needs more attention drawn to it. Everybody has heard of Maria on Lesbos, but I don't think the same attention has been given to um, Samos. And having been to both, the conditions are equally shocking in both. Uh, and this is something that we need to draw more attention to. Yeah, I totally agree with Gemma and the fact that uh, while we've been here, um, the idea of people telling us that they've been bit by rats while they're sleeping because the rats can get into their tent, that's normalized and that shouldn't be normal. Um, and so something we just hope that um, by coming here and doing this, that people actually can see that this is happening and there are people here and we need to do better. We need to do so much better. Since this podcast was recorded, protests have been taking place on Samos by people demanding freedom and healthcare. You can find an article written on this by Gemma Burt and Amanda Russell in the information linked uh, in your podcast provider to this episode. There you can also find links to um, the NGOs Samos Volunteers and Still I Rise, which you can also type into Google. So that is Samos Volunteers and Still I Rise. Uh, and it's possible to donate or volunteer to those uh, NGOs if you'd like to do so. But that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.